Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reid, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And we're both joined once again by our very special guest from New York, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute. And he's here to talk to us again about Revelation chapter 1. And today we're looking at verses 9 to 20. Alistair, hi, welcome back to the show. It's good to be with you again. Now, uh, what's the relationship between verses 9 to 20 of chapter 1 and verses 1 to 8 of the same chapter? It does seem that there are ways in which these verses could be mapped on to each other. You can think about the ways that the the earlier verses of chapter 9 of verse 9 um allude back to the beginning of the first section. So loosely they could be mapped onto each other and it really fills out the um, the vision and we think about the seven churches now we have the lampstands that correspond with those churches etc it's filling out the picture that is introduced in its broad template as it were within the initial eight verses of the book yes and we get this fabulous absolutely fabulous vision of the lord jesus christ now where is john when he sees this vision of the lord jesus well there are a number of ways we could answer that um he's on the island of patmos he's in a situation of exile we can maybe think of a number of other places a number of other occasions in scripture where people were in exile um, and they saw visions of the lord Think about the book of Ezekiel. Um, he was by the Kibar Canal in Babylonia. He sees the heavens opened and sees visions of God. And so there's something similar about this. Or think about the way that um, Daniel is by, again, by the river Tigris and he sees visions. In these cases, maybe there's a suggestion that even as these people go into exile and they're cut off from the rest of their fellows, they are still able to enjoy the most intimate fellowship with God and to know his presence in their midst. So that's one answer we could give. We could also see that he is in the spirit. There's something of a, um, maybe he's caught up in the spirit. We can maybe think about this in relation to Paul's description of the seeing visions in the, the heavens in his description just before his discussion of the thorn in the flesh. Um, we could also maybe connect this to the way that Ezekiel talks of being in the spirit or the way that the hand of the Lord was upon me. I was led in the spirit, etc., to a particular location. So there's something of a spiritual transportation, perhaps, that's in view here to a visionary realm. He's caught up. He sees things that... Um, he would not otherwise see with his naked eyes below the firmament. He's in the spirit on the Lord's Day. I've often wondered, does that mean he's in church? Well, if he's in um, exile, perhaps not. We'll, it's not entirely clear. But when we're thinking about the Lord's Day, we maybe have connotations with that that would not be quite so operative here. We think about the Lord's Day very much in terms of Sunday. We gather together and we worship with the people of God. That's not necessarily something that has the same connotations. They meet on the first day of the week, as we see on occasions in the book of Acts. But 
the idea of the Lord's Day maybe has more connotations with the minor prophets and elsewhere, where it's the day of the Lord. It's something mm-hmm. that is connected with that day of judgment, that day of visitation. But yet, I think it's also connected with the first day of the week. And so I think what we're having here is the initiation of something of a connection that almost gets sapped of some of its weight within our understanding, where we think of it just as Sunday, and we lose the sense of Sunday as the day of the Lord, as something that in miniature every week represents something of what the eschaton means, what the day of the Lord means. And so we lose that connotation and as a result, I think we lose something of what John's describing here. Yeah, why is endurance so important there in verse 9? And in fact, why is endurance so important in the book of Revelation generally? It's a very important theme throughout the New Testament. Think of the book of Hebrews, or maybe think about certain parts in James. Patience, endurance, being able to suffer and to persevere, all of these things are highlighted particularly at this point where people are struggling where they're being persecuted where hope seems to be guttering for some you might think about the ways that peter and jude and others have to remind the christians that the lord is coming in judgment he's going to fulfill his promises they might wonder whether all the promises are going to come to pass they are assured that they will And so for people suffering a situation of persecution and marginalization within their society, they're experiencing all sorts of doubts, perhaps, about the fulfillment of the Lord's words. That defining and feature of endurance, I think, would be so important for them. We see some of this, I think, in Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse, the importance of endurance in those days. And the one who endures to the end will be saved Think about the description of the days being cut short so that people would be able to endure the end. There's something of a message of encouragement to those who have endured and a reminder of people yet a little longer. Hold on. um, You will get vindication. Why is there so much temple or indeed tabernacle imagery in the passage? What's going on with that? Yes. When we think about the temple or tabernacle, it's important to see Again, these are powerful symbols that communicate heavenly realities and earthly realities. They have a mass of different connotations and associations. So we've already mentioned previously the way that seven lampstands might allude to seven times seven, the seven different stems of the lampstand and the seven lampstands themselves might remind you of the jubilee, seven times seven. Or we might think about the burning bush. We might think about the way that the church was defined by the event of Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit, and at Pentecost, tongues of flame rested upon the head of the disciples. And thinking about that imagery, it seems fitting that the church should be described as a lampstand or candlestick. There is something about the church that represents the flame of the Spirit placed upon the heads of anointed persons that gives them the power to speak with authority. So the connection between the burning flame of the spirit and the open tongue, these are things that are established within the symbolism of places like Acts chapter 2, but it's also something that we find in a different form of imagery here. The temple and the tabernacle, 
were both cosmic images. If we look at the description of the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 to 31, it goes through the days of creation, one to seven, twice over. So in chapters 25, 29, it follows that pattern of the days of creation. And then again in chapters 30 to 31. And it's punctuated by these key expressions that formulas that remind you of the division between forming and filling. And um, so there's the doing everything according to the pattern on the mountain. And then there's the continuing these things throughout your generations or the delegation principle. So you have the forming ev everything according to the pattern and the filling or delegation um, throughout your generations. And so what we have in the tabernacle is a sort of miniature world cosmic model. And so if you want to understand the higher heavens, look at the model of the higher heavens upon the earth, which is the tabernacle. And so when John describes this, he's describing it in language that provides a framework within which to understand what's going on. The language of the temple and the tabernacle, which would be well known to people, but also represents the higher realities above the firmament. And so what's being described here is very much that higher reality above the firmament that corresponds to a model below the firmament in the tabernacle or the temple. Is the Lord Jesus here presented as a living tabernacle or temple? We can certainly think back to John chapter 2, where Jesus describes his body as a temple and that will be destroyed and raised up in three days. And the way that Christ is presented in the midst of these things might invite temple um, connotations. Think about the fact that the church is the body of Christ. And these different churches are described as um, associated with temple furniture. But we can also see Christ as the sort of priestly bridegroom. And I think that's where the weight of the imagery primarily falls. Christ is dressed as the great high priest, but also as the bridegroom. And the church is um, that in the midst of which he walks. We might also think of the ways, for instance, that there is a connection between the priest and the lampstand. And so there's something of a connection between Christ and the churches. Think, for instance, of the ways as you go through that pattern, the oil for the anointing of the priest is associated with the oil for the lamps. The priest is the light within the, the holy place also think, for instance, of the way that the lampstand is connected with almond blossoms. And the priest, high priest, is associated with the almond blossoms on the rod of Aaron, as we um, find in Numbers chapter 17. So what we have here, I think, in those sorts of associations are ways of seeing Christ, for instance, as the true light bearer and the church formed in his image as formed as another sort of light bearer. So Christ, for instance, has seven stars in his hand and his face is like the sun shining in full strength. He's the true light bearer. But then we also mm -hmm. have him walking in the midst of the, the lampstands, which have seven lights and then they also are light bearers, but they're light bearers in a derivative sense. Yes, we've got allusions back to the Song of Songs with the bridegroom. We've got allusions to Samson with the, the, his face shining like the sun. Jesus is the ultimate Samson. 
and we've got allusions to the high priest of Israel. Now, why is Jesus dressed like the high priest of Israel here? And I take it he's wearing a sash, so has he completed his atoning work? Is that the significance of that? I mean, I, I think that would be one way of reading it, definitely. And I, I think as we go through it, there are maybe things that attract our attention about this description that seems strange or um, surprising. Not least, for instance, the bringing together of imagery that we have associated with different figures in the Old Testament. Some of the imagery here is associated more with the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. And so there are elements of priestly imagery, there's elements of bridegroom imagery, there are elements of um, the Ancient of Days, there's elements also of the vision of Daniel chapter 10. Um, All of those things, I think, are brought together in different ways. But the imagery is described also in ways that might remind us of the head-to-toe or toe-to-head descriptions of the um, lover and the beloved in the book of Song of Songs, what are called wasifs. Um, Those descriptions going the the height through the body of a person, just describing them at each level of their person. Um, That's something similar to what we find here, which would heighten some of the bridegroom associations. And as we get to the end of the book, of course, Christ is seen more fully as the bridegroom. But we're already being tipped off here that he is the bridegroom by the clothes that he's wearing and also by the way that he's described. Before I carry on with the trumpets, uh, Rido, questions for Alistair? What one of the interesting things is that you have you have these these to, to the seven kind of small churches uh, kind of scattered around, and the picture we have is, is of this grand and great Jesus standing amongst them. Uh, I just I for me that's just such an important image just to kind of see that he's standing there amongst the lampstands, you know, representing the churches that. You know, how encouraging that would be for these people, how encouraging it would be for them, but also for us as well, that he's standing with us, uh, no matter what's going on. Uh, do you want to comment on that? Yes, and John is in fellowship with these people who are in tribulation. He's a brother and partner in the tribulation, but Christ is a partner in the tribulation. And going through the book of Revelation, that is really undermined. They uh, underline they are going to achieve their victory through the blood of Christ because he is the one that suffered for them and with them. He is the faithful witness, but he is the faithful martyr. Give that word witness its proper weight. Christ is the faithful martyr and they will be faithful witness. They're called to be faithful witnesses, to endure to the end and they will be saved. And that is something that we see in the book as we go on, the emphasis upon martyrdom and that sort of witness, and Christ is the one who is with John, their um, fellow and partner in that, and Christ's association with them in his glorious, victorious garments, I think assures them also of their victory in him. Now, what's the significance of trumpets in the Bible, Alistair, and why is the Lord Jesus' voice like a trumpet? Well, I think one of the first places to go would be to Exodus chapter 19 and 20, the description of the Lord's descent upon Sinai, the sound of the trumpet, which is just deafening and terrifying to the people. Um, We read the description of the terrifying character of that theophany as well in the end of the book of Hebrews. It seems to represent the, the majesty and the power of God, and there are earthly 
the analogues made when the silver trumpets are made in the book of numbers as they're about to set out. And so trumpets are associated with a number of different things. Um, but most particularly, I think, with that image of Sinai, the theophanic glory of God appearing as the as the camp is about to move, the silver trumpets are blown because this is representing, as it were, the the whole people on the move. Their trumpet corresponds with the trumpet of the Lord himself and the cloud. As the cloud moves, so the people move with their trumpets. Later, we see the trumpets, and there are different words used for these in the description of different trumpets within scripture. There are trumpets used for the year of Jubilee to announce that release. Trumpets associated with the beginning of the seventh month in the Feast of Trumpets. Think about also trumpets in associated historical events, such as the defeat of Jericho. And Christ's voice as the trumpeting voice, I think, alludes back to those sorts of descriptions, particularly in relationship to Sinai. Elsewhere, we have the voice of God compared to a great earthquake in Ezekiel chapter 3. And in other places, um, think about, about the sound of a, the voice, like the sound of a multitude in Daniel chapter 10. So these are different descriptions for the powerful, earth-shaking, ear-shattering voice of the Lord and his presence. I want to go on just to deal with some of the connections with the book of Daniel, which you've already started to allude to. There's, there's so much. There's so much in this in this passage. But how does the description of Jesus' hair, eyes, and feet remind us of the book of Daniel? So the place to go to here is the vision of Daniel in chapter 10. We've discussed this before, of course, but in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 to 6, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. This is the same sorts of, sort of description that we have here. Many of the details correspond, and it seems that seems reasonable that this is the same person. People dispute this. I think it's most likely a, refer a reference to Christ, not to some distinct angel, um, angelic figure. Um, as we go through the book of Daniel, I think one of the key decisions that that will hinge, hinge upon is whether we identify the hand of the person who touches Daniel with this figure or with another figure who's explaining what Daniel is seeing. And I think it's the latter. But what we have here as well, is similar to Daniel's response. John falls down as dead. Daniel fell down as dead. And the ways that this image is described might also, within the book of Daniel, remind us of earlier things. So if you go back to chapter two of Daniel, you have this other metal man. This is a metal man. And you can think about the, the gold, the face that is like gleaming like lightning. And we have another gleaming face, the head of gold of the statue in chapter two. And so this image, again, might remind us of just as the tabernacle has gold in its inner places, then silver in its outside and then um, in its structure. And then 
bronze in the outer courtyard. And then as you go out further, you have the other baser metals. What you have here, I think, is a sort of image of a, a metal man that could also be seen as an image of a temple man, a man who has that sort of structure that alludes to the temple. Again, the associations with the high priest should not be missed here because the high priest is dressed in a way that evokes the temple. His dress corresponds with certain parts of the temple. And so in the description of the garments of the high priest, there is a mapping on to the description of the tabernacle structure in the second day phase, as it were, of the tabernacle's construction. And so the Lord Jesus really is presented as the fulfillment of that metal man image and his kingdom, the fulfillment of it. And, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the events of, book of the book of Daniel. You know, how I've got, to, I've got to ask you about the Nazarites. <laughs> it may seem rather obscure, but I love it. How does the description of Jesus here refer back to the Nazarites? Yes. So it's yeah, the the hair, I think, would most immediately for me evoke the the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. You can also think about the ways that the hair of the Nazarite is emphasized. The Nazarite is a warrior, and his head is set apart for a sort of sacrificial purpose. Christ is going to be this warrior, and he's going to be the one enacting this great victory that leads to the wine at the end. Um, and he's going to produce that wine, treading out the wine press. And so his hair is described at the beginning. We can maybe think of this as a sort of initial description of the one who's going to perform this Nazarite vow over the course of the book. And at the end, fulfill the, the vow and there will be the wedding supper of the Lamb. What are the seven stars in Jesus' right hand? Who do they, what do they represent? Well, there certainly seems to be a correspondence with the lamp stands, the, those seven lights. But the seven stars might be a reference to the seven lights in the heaven, great lights in the heavens. So this would be the sun, the moon, and the visible planets. So Jupiter, Mars, Mercury, Venus, and Saturn. And these, of course, are also associated with the days of the week. Um, so there are associations that, again, this is why symbol is so powerful, because you have those seven lights that correspond with the seven spirits They before the throne. They correspond with the seven lights in the heavens. They correspond with the seven days of the week. And they correspond with the seven lampstands of the churches. And they correspond with the seven leaders of the churches, etc., etc. And yet... They don't need to be a complete identification with any of those things. They um, ex help us to recognize connotations and associations and analogies, but without collapsing these things into each other. And so we need to just appreciate the brilliance of symbolism as a means of communication in a, a vision like this. Indeed. It's fabulous, isn't it? Um, we're fast running out of time. Oh, I've got so many more questions. Now, what's the sword? We've got to deal with the sword in Jesus' mouth. What's that, what's that symbolize? If you look through the stories of the appointing of prophets within Scripture, they are often given um, the power of speech and um, the power to speak in a way that is tearing up kingdoms or planting kingdoms at the beginning of Jeremiah or purifying the lips of the prophet in the case of Isaiah chapter 6, or the word 
of the Lord ingested by the prophet as a form of authority in Ezekiel. Um, in these cases, I think the prophet's word is a fiery burning word. Think about, again, the image of the tongues of flame upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. So those are all images of the power of the word. This is a different image of the power of the word, the sharp two-edged sword that comes out. Think about the image that's used in the book of Hebrews, the dividing of the powerful word, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Christ's word is the means by which he rules, the means by which he acts. And that association is really drawn by the sword that comes out of his mouth. What's John's response to all of this in verse 17? Pretty dramatic response. It is. And it's the same as, again, I think it helps us draw some of the associations. It's the same of that as that of Daniel when he sees that great final vision. Falling down at his feet as though dead. And as we go through, um, we can maybe see some of these associations as he falls down as if as dead, and then he's raised up. There's a sort of death and resurrection um, dynamic taking place here. And it's one of the things that we might think about when Christ declares that he has the power over death, that he is the living one. He's died and he is alive forevermore. And so his power of resurrection is one that will help the one who's fallen down as those as though dead to rise up. Think about the ways in which the people to whom John is writing have experienced immense persecution. And so they've, in some sense, fallen down. They're going to be lifted up by hopefully the word of um, the prophecy declared to them. Now, Alistair, who are the angels in Revelation 1 to 3, the, the angelos, the messengers? Are they the pastors or are um, they actual angels? I mean, there are different ways to understand them. I think maybe think about the angels in Daniel that have power over um, particular kingdoms and empires, Prince of Persia, figures like that. Think about the ways the sons of God are described at the beginning of the book of Job. Um, and maybe think of these angelic powers. But yet, as we go through the book of Revelation, there's a general movement to humanize the heavens. So the angels were formerly in charge. They were formerly the ones who ruled. And just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we will judge angels, so there's a sense in which the heavens are about to be occupied by human beings in as the saints are lifted up and they're raised up to rule. And it seems reasonable, and James Jordan and others have argued, that these, these messengers um, should be seen as the messengers of the churches, as the pastors or the overseers of various congregations in these cities. And that helps to fit in with the larger themes of the book, with the lifting up of the human messengers to take the place of the angels. So uh, as we come to an end, what are the, what's the role of pastors and churches then? According to Revelation 1, a very, very high role by the sound of things. Yes, and we can might think about the different ways that angels function. Angels are messengers. They bear the word of the Lord. Think about the ways that they participate in the um, divine council. They speak on behalf of the people. And so that's one aspect. Angels are rulers. Think about the prince of Persia or some other angelic figure like that, or your prince in the case of Michael. And um, think also about 
the ways that they are priestly figures. They are those who are servants of the Lord, who serve in the heavenly um, temple. And so in these ways, overseers within the church can function in those different capacities. As priests, they can be those who lead the church in its ministry as the servant priesthood of the royal priesthood. As kings, they can be overseers, those who are the guardians and protectors of the church to ensure that it is they are protected from error, false teaching, they guard against the wolves and ensure that they are kept out. And in the case of messengers and prophets, they are those who bring the word of the Lord and who speak on behalf of the church to the Lord. They pray and they give themselves to the word of the Lord and also to prayer. And so in those different respects, we might see analogies between the overseers of churches and pastors of churches and the angels. Rito, final questions for Alistair? So I'm a clumsy pastor then, does it? <laughs> Very high responsibility, yes. Yeah, kind of again, you know, what, you know, what's the role there is to point people in the same places and back to Jesus constantly, you know, which is what John is doing as the great pastor kind of of these churches. He's pointing us back to Jesus, helping us worship him. And when we think about the role of pastors, they're always under shepherd. They're not the owners of the flock. They are the servants of the true shepherd who does own the flock. And so they're always accountable for the flock to the great shepherd, the chief shepherd that they serve. And so when we're thinking about the messengers of the churches, they are never anything more than servants. But as the representatives of their master, they have a very important role to serve and they should be honoured on account of who they serve. One very quick last question before before we go. Um, is there a connection between the geographical position of the seven churches, Alistair, and the seven stars of the Pleiades? I have to ask that question because there it's are... just the sort of question that I find fascinating. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's definitely a theory that's been put forward and has with many theories about the cosmic and or the celestial symbolism of the book of Revelation. I just find it fascinating. Mm. Um, I've not decided on it, though, in part because I just don't have the expertise in um, astronomy to be able to speak to some of those questions, but I can certainly um, entertain the speculations. Yes. Am I right, in, if I remember, that you can put a map on the Pleiades and the, the geographical position of the seven churches, it's like the way the constellations run or something. Is that right? That's certainly the argument. Um, yeah. And if you thought about it that way, you've got the um, seven stars in the right hand, which would represent the great planets um, and the sun and the moon. Um, and then you'd have the other stars as a lower body of stars that corresponds. So it's certainly an attractive thesis. Mm, great fun. Thank you, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. As always, Alistair, absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you to Rido, my co-host, Reverend Ian Reid of the King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Gentlemen, thank you once again so much. Thank you for having me on. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.